The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we're looking back at one of the most compelling cases from the Court TV trial archives with an audio edition of our original series, Judgment with Ashley Banfield. We'll get an in-depth look at the 1991 murder trial of Betty Broderick, a socialite who appeared to lead a perfect life until it all came crashing down in a bitter and public divorce and the double murder of her ex-husband and his new wife. Featuring interviews with Betty Broderick's defense attorney, Jack Early, forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz, and her divorce attorney, Daniel Jaffe, this is Judgment of Betty Broderick. This is the Court TV Podcast. like a woman scorned. It's an old quote commonly attributed to the 17th century play, The Morning Bride, a tragic tale of love, deception, and betrayal that ultimately leads to murder. These are themes that closely mirror the real life story of Betty Broderick, the San Diego socialite who capped off an ugly divorce by gunning down her ex-husband, Dan, and his new wife, Linda, in the early morning hours of November 5th, 1989. This controversial case resulted in two criminal trials, both attracting extensive media attention and raising important questions about a woman's role in society, as well as equal rights and protection under the law. Dan and Betty Broderick landed in the crown jewel of San Diego. La Jolla is right along the coast, beautiful homes. This is uh, the old wealthy, uh, the new rich, and they were social. Dan was president of the Bar Association in San Diego County. He dressed very sharply. He had a magnificent court presence. Betty was considered a socialite. She was there with him almost 20 years, and things changed, and she did not take it well. She was uh, his wife. That was her identity, basically. She had the big Suburban with the load em up, you know, license plate. And she was like the, the perfect Suburban mom. To the outside world, no one would ever know that she was going to end up enduring what was ahead of her, settling her divorce. 
It was like the worst divorce in the history of San Diego. She felt that she had been done wrong in every possible way. This was a woman who met him when she was very young. They had four children together. And when he found another woman who she openly said was a younger version of her, another blonde, she just snapped. It was quiet at Dan Broderick's Hillcrest home this morning. The police activity, an indication of something less than tranquil inside. Broderick, 44, and his 28-year-old second wife, Linda, lay shot to death. Friends apparently got a call in the early morning hours that something was wrong. Police got a call soon after. The police say Broderick's ex-wife may have made both phone calls. I covered major murder trials throughout decades in San Diego, and this was one of the ones that just stunned the community. It got everyone talking. Betty went to Dan and Linda's house in the early morning hours before dawn. She broke into the house silently, climbed the stairs armed with a 38 caliber revolver. disturbance awoke someone. She thought it was Linda who screamed, call the police. And she said that all of a sudden, she didn't really know what happened. There was an explosion. And they screamed. She claimed she never went there to kill him. But who are you going to believe, you know? execution. This was a double execution. It was vicious. It was planned. It was premeditated. It was intentional. It was almost as uh, good as a professional hit. She wanted some kind of family life. She wanted some kind of, some kind of love, some kind of tenderness for her and the children. I had represented a fair number of women who had been accused of homicide and had been involved in cases that had to do with emotional and mental issues. When I first got involved in the case, Carrie Wells was the prosecutor on it. Carrie was already uh, very invested. She came from a domestic violence unit, so it wasn't just she didn't like Betty, she didn't like lawyers in general, including uh, probably me. I lived and ate and breathed and slept this case for two years because I feared that Elizabeth Broderick was not going to be held responsible for killing two people. We are unable to reach a unanimous decision between murder and manslaughter for Dan or Linda Broderick. The verdict in the first trial was on jury. Ten of the jurors wanted to convict a first-degree murder. Two felt that uh, that was too much. They butted heads for days and then finally came back to Judge Whalen and said, we can't come to a decision. I'm disappointed. I thought the evidence supported a verdict. She's not relieved at the prospect that, that this has to go, you know, has to go forward again. The second trial was covered gavel to gavel by court TV. Okay, okay. Three, two, one. Let's go. This was a ratings boom. Court TV was in its infancy, and this was an experiment. And it paid off for them. It paid off for a local station that preempted their soap operas and ran the Betty Broderick trial. And people watched. They were riveted to the screen. She was on Oprah twice, I think the most popular shows ever. There's a movie about her with Meredith Baxter Burney. 
And right now, Dirty John has a series on her, on Betty Broderick's story. It's fascinating. It's like a TV movie. The Betty Broderick case couldn't have been more of a Lifetime movie if it had had script writers. Everyone rise, please. Department 28 of the Superior Court is now in session. Gentlemen, Thomas J. Graham, please be seated and go order. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This case is about the cold-blooded execution of two people. The evidence that you'll hear, the undisputed evidence, is that Elizabeth Broderick, the defendant, shot and killed two people as they lay helpless in their sleep. And she did it because she hated them. She is manipulative. She's very bright. She's uh, very charismatic. You can be bright and, and charismatic and, and kill people. Please proceed, Mr. Early. Thank you. This is a family. This was their family. She thought it was protected. And when he left without telling her that there was going to be a divorce, that they were leaving, that they weren't going to be together, he took this and said, glass is not going to protect this picture. Your family is not going to be protected. And he smashed that family apart. And she believed at that time that the glass protects the picture and that the vials protect the family. But it was shattered. I spent days and days and days and weeks getting art students to take pictures of the family, put glass over it, cover it with tape so I could smash the picture on a podium and have a fractured frame in front of it to show how this family had been fractured by Dan. There's something going on with Dan. He's obviously unhappy when she says, it's your fault, Dan Broderick, or saying you're having an affair. No, it's your fault, Elizabeth Broderick. Gaslighting from an old Charles Boyer movie. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? Gaslighting is as simple as making people believe when you're seeing what's before you is that you're not really seeing it, that it all comes from your head. And with Betty, gaslighting was Dan telling her that she was crazy. And then I thought I was just going to blow my brains out. But I said, no, 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 let's not do that. That's not what's good for the boys. With Betty Broderick's second trial underway, defense counsel Jack Early hopes to instill enough doubt in the minds of the jurors about his client's culpability. His goal, a lesser conviction of manslaughter or once again a deadlocked jury. But prosecutor Carrie Wells has learned from the mistakes of the first trial and is making it her mission to see that Betty Broderick is held to account for the murders of Dan and Linda. Morning. Can you describe for us whether, from your observations, whether your parents had a happy marriage? No, I didn't think it was a happy marriage at all. As far as I can remember back, they were fighting and saying they were going to get divorced. She used to criticize Dan a lot, the way he looked when they married and so on, and, and the way he was. She said he was kind of nerdy. I feel she was intimidated. She was quiet. She had a proper behavior. There was um, a role that I feel she was expected to play as Mrs. Dan Broderick. She used to call him a f I remember calling her on it and saying, stop this. And she said, oh, doesn't bother him. And it just continued on, and he just kind of lived with it. 
Dan had gone to Cornell and had gone to Harvard Medical, and then he went to law school. He explained to her the reason why, how they would be much better off with that. And Betty, again, was very supportive. She was a model, and he was the geek, and she was the, you know, the it girl, and that he begged her to marry him, and then she finally did, and then when they got married, everything turned. She was raising the children, she was uh, teaching, she was working at night. She was doing all the things to make sure that Dan would be able to go to school and be successful. She looked at all of this as being an investment in the future. Money was a, a very strong focus, the focus. And I said, well, why did you marry him? She says, because he was going to be a money-making machine. Dan came to San Diego and quickly hooked up with one of the most prestigious law firms in the city. After just a few years there, he branched out on his own. Dan hired a legal assistant who was basically a young Betty. Very attractive, blonde, and then all of a sudden, he was out in public with her doing things. Betty, on his 39th birthday, took a bottle of champagne and some red roses to his office, thought she'd surprise him and uh, maybe sweeten up the marriage a little bit. He wasn't there. She was told that he was out with Linda. There was an incident where Betty came to his office and ended up burning his clothes at the end of it. She went in and took all the clothes and threw them out the back over the balcony under the grass, went down and put gasoline all over the place and lit it on fire. It was a gesture of, how dare you do this to me while this is who you're pretending to be. When Dan moved out, he didn't tell Betty, I'm moving out, we're getting a divorce. What he said is, we need time apart. She was going to leave herself in his hands. And that had been Betty's approach throughout this case with Dan. Dan Broderick decided he wanted someone new, and it was a younger, very attractive woman. She had conveyed to me that he was having a classic midlife crisis and that she'd hoped he would come to his senses and return to her in the family. She was the quintessential uh, left bride. Her job description, she said, was wife and mother, and he could not change to just mother. Her strong statement to me that I can recall is, um, if I can't be Mrs. Dan Broderick, then he can have the kids. Mom and I got in an argument, and then Mom came in and said that, that pack up and leave, that she, was, she didn't want me there anymore. I can go live with Dad, so. My brother, Danny, came over the next day, and then my sister, Lee and Rhett, came over. They were hysterically crying. They were very upset. Dad wasn't home. It was late at night, and I don't know what had occurred at that house that made her bring them over, but she said, let him try and deal with four kids. She didn't want him to take off with Linda and leave everybody else hanging, and she was very fearful that he would disappear and just leave everyone. The decision to leave the children with Dan was a fatal decision by Betty in the sense that Betty had this belief that Dan never realized all the work it took to be a parent. It had the opposite effect that gave Dan another weapon to use against Betty to say she abandoned her children. 
tell him to give me the kids and just leave us alone. And if he wouldn't agree at all, I was just going to kill myself in his house. Dan Broderick was a premier attorney in San Diego, and Betty helped him build one of the most successful medical malpractice firms in the city, with the potential to rake in tens of millions of dollars over the next several decades. Dan sought out and received what is known as a bifurcated divorce, which, unlike a regular divorce, allows for the immediate dissolution of the marriage before any of the complex financial or custodial issues are sorted out by both parties. This move on Dan's part left Betty angry, confused, and eager to gain the upper hand. She is made aware in 1985 that there is going to be a divorce. So what does Dan do? He starts off the divorce doing just what he had told Betty he used to do to make sure that he was sitting on people when he negotiated. Right after she moved into Calle de Cielo was the period of time that I talked about where she was going over to Coral Reef and vandalizing the house. She spray painted the house once. And then another time she smeared lipstick on the bathroom mirror saying something. And then another time she smeared Boston cream pie all over dad's bed. Okay, I have marked this people's exhibit 54 here. Did he ask you to uh, go over to the Coral Reef house at the time and check out the condition of the Coral Reef house? Yes. When I arrived, I went around to the back of the house. There was a sliding glass door broken, and there was a very strong smell of some flammable material, I guess gasoline. And I discovered on some stairs going to the second floor that there were burned patches and matches thrown various places, and then the remains of a pack of matches on the stairs. Did your dad ever uh, talk to her about stopping doing that? Yes, repeatedly. She wasn't going to stop doing that. And Dad thought that if we moved out of there, that the mom wouldn't want to come around because we wouldn't be in her house anymore. So she went and went aggravator that we were all living in this house. Did you enter into the negotiation <laughs> with Dan Broderick's attorney for the sale of the family residence at Coral Reef? Yes. How the monies from the sale of the residence would be divided between uh, Mr. and Mrs. Broderick? The Coral Reef house was important for Betty for a reason. That's the first home they really bought. That was their family home. For Dan, it was just an asset. And he wanted out of the marriage. So that home to him was something he wanted to get rid of immediately. For Betty, she clung on to that as much as she could. Betty was referred to me by a lawyer friend in San Diego. We had originally planned for a four-way meeting between the uh, Mr. Ashworth, myself, and the Brodericks. But she did not want to come up and attend the meeting. She didn't want to be in uh, Mr. Broderick's presence. She couldn't handle the separation at all. And she certainly couldn't handle the legal process. And I've told her lawyer that on a number of occasions, don't do that. Do not play the, the, the legal game with her. Uh, you, she has to be handled differently. Uh, the agreement was that the uh, house would be sold proceeds would be equally divided, but from Mr. Broderick's share of the proceeds, 
Mrs. Broderick would get an additional eight, I think it was $18,500. Well, she wanted to think about it. She wasn't ready to sign it at that point. I advised her that unless there was a, an agreement that he would go into court if she didn't go along with this division. When he wanted to sell a house, he went to court to get a court order. Nick essentially never discussed with, with Betty what he was doing. She didn't agree to it. And all of a sudden, she gets a court order that her the house is sold. And, and she did things in between that everybody knows about, like driving her suburban to the front door of his house. Everything started shaking, and then the sound. It sounded like a car. I could hear mom, and I couldn't hear dad. Dad wasn't saying anything. I assumed he was dead. She was behaving truly inappropriately, and, and that's why, I, essentially, I got out of the case, uh, because she absolutely wouldn't listen to uh, my advice. I actually warned that something violent would happen. I just kept telling Dan's lawyer, you can't handle this case this way. Okay, proceed, Mr. Early. Jack Early decided that uh, he was going to be very colorful and demonstrative. He put her on the stand to get her side out there. You never know when that defendant is going to Morning. step over the line and do something you don't really want to know. Like my eyeballs were turned backwards and the whole world was inside my head. It felt like you were in hell, actually. Dan Broderick knew the law backwards and forwards, and he used that knowledge to his advantage when he divorced Betty after 16 years of marriage. Betty, on the other hand, didn't have those skills and felt that Dan's stature in the legal community made any attempt to battle him in court a fruitless endeavor. So instead, she decided to employ increasingly desperate measures to get her way, resorting to criminal acts that were alarming to both her friends and her family. It was never quiet in the hallways. They were always talking about the case. Stand by. She had the American dream, and it went sour. Many people thought that they could identify with Betty. There was a lot of talk both directions. And you figure the jury comes from a general pool of the people. So you assume that many of the jurors are going to have a lot of the same feelings as the people in the hallways that are talking. Did you return to the house at some point in time? Yes. Okay, and what did you do when you returned to the house? I banned my car into his front door. Why did you run your car into his front door? I was extremely hysterical. I was totally upset. I was crying. I, the biggest thing that bothered me, was, you know, besides the sale of the house, the biggest thing that bothered me was that the way he was treating me. You know, this is uh, the man that was supposed to take care of us and that I trusted and all that baloney. And uh, I went to him for answers, and the way he treated me was just so awful and so cold and just non-communicative, like it was just, it was just like, <laughs> screw you, you know? Were you kept away from seeing the kids by something? Or is yes, that... by this restraining order. I was very scared by it because I did, I was defiant and I did go see the kids as much as I could, but I was very scared because he was threatening to every time I came to see my own kids that I was liable to be thrown in jail. Dan supposedly papered her with legal actions. When they were going through the divorce, she, in turn, would do things to throw things out of whack. Were you aware of any times when your mother would go into your dad's house when she was not supposed to be there, when it violated a restraining order? Yes. 
Were you ever requested by Mr. Uh, Broderick as part of your employment to change the locks on his house in Cyprus? Yes, October, November of 88, three times, and then a fourth time in May of 89. Betty became, I would say, distraught, more helpless. She became very frustrated. She was indignant. She was embarrassed. She was angry. And then all of that was replaced with rage. When you say she hated him, if you had to rank it on a scale of 1 to 10. Oh, she's obviously over 10, 10 plus plus. And that was a continuous problem with Betty. We just couldn't seem to get her to, to let go of the whole thing and get on with it. She got so angry, so obsessed with getting even with Dan that she victimized her children. referring to Linda. He was completely distraught over that. He, he was very upset. In the that were dealing with the kids had talked to her about the harm that this conduct was causing to those kids. But she decided it was more important for her to hopefully make Dan and Linda miserable. She said, quote, no way. I'm not going to be the single mother of four kids. I've already told you that. He'll die first. I'm not letting go of him that easy. The little, the little mine and he'll stay mine, end quote. She may be the angriest person I ever saw. One of the top two, anyway. They don't know about the numerous times that Dan tried to give her the kids and how she would tell the mediator that there was no way she'd take those kids. No way in hell would she take those kids because she was going to make Dan and Linda miserable. Good afternoon, Lee. Hi. After your, your mom and dad separated, did your dad indicate that, that he was afraid of your mother? She just, he, everybody knew that my dad was afraid of my mom. He came to me and he asked me, if I could find out if my mom had a gun or not. So I went to my mom's house. I asked my mom, everybody knows you have a gun. Come on, let's, I want to see it. And she said, wait here. She went into her room and got it and came back out and showed it. She told me that she had been practicing target practice. 
told me she had a gun in her glove box and she would kill me. At that point, there was not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that that Mrs. Broderick would not kill me. Betty Broderick's mental state leading up to the morning of November 5th, 1989, was at the heart of both of her criminal trials. Her attorney claimed that years of mental and emotional abuse at the hands of her ex-husband led her to act out in increasingly bizarre and dangerous ways, which ultimately culminated in the murders of Dan and Linda. During the second trial, the prosecution pulled out all the stops by asking renowned forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz to take the stand as the state's expert witness. Betty changed colossally. Betty had gained an enormous amount of weight. Her body had turned into an old woman's, and um, her personality was one of despair and sadness. You indicated that there was another threat that she had made? She told me that she had had a talk with Dan, and that she told him that either he gave her a million dollars in cash, uh, or she was going to kill him. She also indicated that if, if he did give her the million dollars in cash, she wouldn't bring up wanting custody of the children anymore. She was a victim, but she was also a perpetrator herself. The two of them went at each other viciously. I was waiting for the boys to get home. Danny came off the bus. Rhett was not there. I saw her pull up onto the sidewalk. I asked Rhett to please step out of the Suburban. You can't order my children around. You have no, no say. You can't control them. Brett looked over at me. He told me his mother had a butcher knife under the seat. At that point, Betty Broderick told me she had a gun in her glove box and she would kill me. There was not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that that Mrs. Broderick would not kill me. She was upset and angry. She had just come from her accountant, they told me, and the accountant had indicated to her that when all of her real estate transactions were complete, she'd have about sixty or $80,000 left to live on for the rest of her life. Now this, again, this was something that she was telling you. You don't have any independent knowledge of whether or not that was true. No, I don't. When you find out that he was paying her voluntarily $9,000 a month and then $16,000 a month and that she was living in a beautiful home in La Jolla, you start again to have a little bit different picture about what the misery that she was living in. She is a master at distortion. Morning, doctor. How are you? Morning. I received a call in 1990 asking if I'd be willing to work on the Betty Broderick retrial. And it was from uh, prosecutors with the San Diego DA's office. They told me that their expectation was that she was going to uh, try to mount the claim that she couldn't form the intent to kill the victims, previously known as diminished capacity, sometimes called diminished actuality. My name is Park Elliott Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z. If Park Dietz is one of the people that he's going to testify in the case and tell me nothing about the case at all, I could give you an envelope with the diagnosis in it, and it would be pretty 95% spot on. Doctor, what is a narcissistic personality? A narcissistic personality is an individual who is very full of himself or herself. That is, 
um, prideful, very focused on being important, needing to be admired and respected by other people. I was able to testify to what wasn't, wasn't wrong with her. She tried to burn down one of the homes. She drove her vehicle into his house. She'd made statements about all those things and written about those things in a way that made it perfectly plain that they were by design, thoroughly planned, and intended to gain revenge. And Ms. Broderick, you're still under oath from last week, ma'am. Betty Broderick wanted to take the stand. Betty Broderick wanted the world to know, this is why I did it, and this is what happened to me, and this is why I snapped. Your anger at Dan Broderick after the separation is what made you change your feelings about whether or not you'd had a good marriage before the separation, correct? I couldn't handle being sued from the day one. I didn't know how to protect myself or defend myself. And every time legal papers came, I felt they were an attack. And I was scared that there was all this, these thoughts just churning in my head. And there was so much going on inside my head is that's kind of like my eyeballs were turned backwards and the whole world was inside my head. It felt like you were in hell, actually. And then I thought I was just gonna blow my brains out. But I said, no, 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 let's not do that. That's not what's good for the boys, you know? We're gonna go over, we're gonna talk to Dan. We're gonna just try one more time to talk to Dan, to tell him to give me the kids and just leave us alone. And if he wouldn't agree at all, I was just going to kill myself in his house. In that situation, where it is a narcissistic personality disorder, the, the central characteristics really are three. I wrote a suicide note and left it on the kitchen counter. And then it says three things that I can't take anymore. The first is that the individual tends to have what people would commonly refer to as a, a swollen ego. Number one, Linda Colquino, the interfering with what little contact I have left with my children. The second characteristic is that such people really can't recognize how other people feel about things. Number two, the constant threats of court, jail, contempt, fines, etc., which is very scary to me. And no matter what the evidence, I always lose. And the third characteristic is being thin-skinned. Number three, them constantly insinuating I'm crazy. That's the same thing that he'd been telling me since 1983, is that I'm emotionally disturbed and I have a mental disease and I couldn't stand getting attacked like this. There's absolutely no question in my mind that she intended to kill Dan and Linda, that she had thought about killing them for years. I brought the gun with me initially to make them have to talk to me. And if they said they were gonna call the police, I'd say, no, you're not. What did you do when you went into their bedroom? The movement that I made into their bedroom woke them up and they moved and somebody screamed, call the police, and I said, no! And I just fired the gun and this big noise went off. I mean, it just was an explosion. I don't think she ever thought the reaction would be call the police right away. And, and her reaction to that appeared to be, at the time, genuine in a dissociative state. It was not five separate noises. It when was you were one asked, noise. Well, last time, whether you remembered the shots, 
You testified specifically that you remembered all five shots. I remember the real loud noise five times. It was just one noise on that morning. You also, when you testified last time, you never testified that anyone yelled, called the police, did you? Did anybody ask me that? Yes, they did ask you that. She's a wonderful little liar. And she was very slippery and very uh, good at testifying, probably the best I think I'll ever see. Can you tell us what the likelihood is that the defendants shooting these five shots were all the result of accidental discharges? Boarding on impossible. Thank you, nothing further. There was testimony about how true her aim was. She then went to her daughter's house and hid for a few hours and then turned herself in. On that date, early in the morning, do you recall receiving a phone call? It was my mom. She told me that she shot my dad. She shot the son of a bitch. She wanted to come to my house. She said she shot the gun one time, but it fired five or six times. She didn't think that she had hurt my dad because he had sat up and said, um, all right, you shot me, I'm dead. Now, sometime after November the 5th, when Dan and Linda were killed, did she say anything to you about why she had killed Dan or Linda? Linda was destroying her life, destroying her family, destroying her social life. And I said back to her, so you destroyed her. And she said, yes. <clears throat> she said it very lightheartedly. I asked her, what could I have done to stop you from what she did? And she said, there was nothing you could have done. Nothing. From Linda to Dan to Linda again. The people of the state of California versus Elizabeth Ann Broderick Burney. In the years prior to the murders of Dan and Linda Broderick, Betty had made countless threats against their lives to anyone who would listen. She also purchased a 38 caliber revolver and a box of hollow point bullets, which are designed to create the most physical damage when fired into a human being. Defense attorney Jack Early has the monumental task of convincing this jury that these deliberate acts of premeditation were merely the result of the emotional abuse that she'd endured over the years, and that the crimes she committed were simply a matter of self-preservation. The question is, will any of the jurors buy it? Testing, one, two, three, testing, testing. Sounds good, okay. This time we're gonna have the closing statements of the attorneys. Make sure as well. Your job is to decide the legal culpability of Elizabeth Broderick's conduct on November the 5th, 1989. And that's it. The question for you is simply, did Elizabeth Broderick commit these murders? The cold, hard facts of what actually happened in the room are indisputable. She had to shoot Linda in the bed. She had to point at Dan and shoot him in the back. From Linda, to Dan, to Linda again, to accomplish that last shot into the back of Linda's head. To me, uh, you know, it would have been devastating to have another hung jury, um, because then the potential of trying a case a third time around, the, the chances are very slim. Wait for seat, Mr. Early. It is not a case where we are telling you that as jurors, you should ignore the law. 
and you'll be instructed in the element of voluntary manslaughter. There is an intent to kill. But somebody who is pounded and pounded and pounded and dripped and dripped and dripped day by day, year by year, is going to build it up. And sure, there's going to be anger. It's going to go higher. And it's going to be with them a very long period of time. She never made any claims that she didn't do it. But why? That was for the jury to decide. All right, one recess. It was hopeful because the jury was out for a while. And you know, they were asking questions. So the jurors were invested in the case. And that meant a lot to me because we tend to do better when jurors are invested in the case. There are camera crews which have crawled out of the woodwork from all over town. It looks like this jury may have a verdict. The Superior Court is now in session. The Honorable Thomas J. Whalen, Judge Presiding. Mr. McAllister, I understand the jury has reached a verdict. Yes, that's correct. Would you give the forms to my bailiff, please? The people of the state of California, plaintiff versus Elizabeth Ann Broderick, defendant. We, the jury, find the defendant, Elizabeth Ann Broderick, guilty of the crime of murder in the second degree. Victim, Daniel Broderick. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of the crime of murder in the second degree. Victim, Linda Broderick. When the verdict came in, first of all, I don't really think that she, at the moment, understood what was going on. The smile was the fact that someone listened to her. My discussions with the jurors afterwards is that uh, most of the jurors did believe it was premeditated. As it is said, it is a long and hard and painful to create life, and it is short and easy to steal the life others have made. And I would hope that the court will show us that the lives that they had did not uh, go in vain and had, did have some value. I never laughed more than I did when I was with Linda. Her friendships were based on the same values with which she was raised. Another relationship would have been so much easier, but Linda truly loved Dan despite all the problems he would face. And Dan, unaccustomed as he was to a loving partner, loved her very much. Communications with her children indicated that they never heard an apology from her. She never made any comment that indicated she had true remorse. She said that Dan deserved it, basically, that Linda deserved it. They had driven her to the point where I'm crazy and that she was basically getting even. What would I do if my spouse decided after 20-something years just to move on? Would I want to kill him? Maybe. I think a lot of people can identify with Betty Broderick. We've all had situations where we feel cast aside, where we feel left out, where we feel excluded, where we feel hurt by somebody who we love and who presumably loves us. She's almost a uh, catalog of personality disorder features. To me, the most important one, the one that really helps understand what went on in this case is this sense of entitlement. I think Betty Broderick was fascinating because she was the most unrepentant 
criminal who ever lived. She was glad she did it, and she would do it again. Betty Broderick has been denied parole twice, and her four children have differing opinions as to whether she should ever be released. Two of her children believe that Betty has done her time, with her daughter Lee even offering to take her in. But the other two believe that she belongs right where she is, behind bars, and will only commit more crimes if she's ever freed from prison. Betty is currently serving her 32-year sentence at the Institute for Women in Chino, California. She won't be up again for parole until 2032, when she's 85 years old. I'm Ashley Banfield. Thanks for joining us. There you have it, another truly fascinating trial. If you want to see the full 1991 retrial of Betty Broderick, it's available to stream for free on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And for in-depth coverage of the biggest current legal and true crime stories, tune into my show, Closing Arguments with Vinnie Politan, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on Court TV. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.